You don't see many autobiographies of fiction writers. Unlike soldiers and statesmen, they don't come to an age when they say, now I must go back and set it all down for posterity. And the reason may be that fiction writers have been writing their autobiographies piecemeal, overtly or covertly, and they go on doing it every day. Somebody said to me once, I envy you, how nice it must be to be able to write your life instead of having to live it. When the celebrated novelist Wallace Stegner visited Sal in 1990, he was 81 years old and just three years away from his passing. With equal measures of charm and critique, Stegner offers a masterclass on the intermingling of life and art. He questions the very nature of storytelling. Is it method or perspective, experience or technique? The writers he admires aren't carpenters working from blueprints, but sculptors in search of the, quote, mystery implicit in the stone. I'm Rebecca Hoogs, the Interim Executive Director of Seattle Arts and Lectures. You're listening to Sal On Air, a collection of talks from the world's best writers from over 30 years of Seattle Arts and Lectures. Many have wondered not only about Stegner's stories and novels, but about stories and novels in general. How a writer's life appears in the art they make. Are novels ever complete fictions, or are they merely cloaked versions of the truth? Stegner believed that a good novel was, quote, a real probing of real, troubling human confusions. In fiction, he said, quote, we should have no agenda except to try to be truthful. By this, he did not mean simply recounting the events and relationships of one's life under different names or circumstances. Quote, a good writer is not a mirror, but a lens. And skill, he says, is whatever works, but it must work toward something. For Stegner, it was most important to clear away all but the truth by whatever method allowed the writer to lay bare even a moment of the human mystery and struggle that is living. The questions Stegner raised in 1990 about fact and fiction, life and art, craft and vision, are ones we continue to chisel away at today. This is Sal on Air. Thank you, Sharon. And thank you, ladies and gentlemen. Can you hear me, first of all? Oh, good. <laughs> it's nice to be back in Seattle, which I lived in for about two years when I was three and four years old. <laughs> My earliest memories, as a matter of fact, are of Seattle. I remember being on the steps of some boarding house or other where we were living and telling the kid next door, I'm half Norwegian and half Indian, but don't tell anybody. I don't know why I told him that or why it wasn't to, to be told to anybody. But that's almost the first thing I ever remember saying. It was a lie. It was a fiction. <laughs> I, I also remember a, an afternoon in the Bon Marche where my mother, who was Norwegian, uh, had to interpret for a very excited old Norwegian lady who kept saying to the clerk, I want the nail and a big one, too. Uh, Nail being Norwegian for needle, and she couldn't make anybody understand. They were bringing her spikes and all kinds of things. <laughs> uh, she finally got her darning needle and went away. But, but uh, I, I remember being very proud of my mother who could 
do that, you know, to that old excited woman and calm her right down. Uh, that's my total Seattle memory. <laughs> it is very nice to be here, and I am the, I will, it's a better night than last night in Portland when I had to preside over a gloomy audience which had just heard the Blazers lose their winning streak. I don't think any such streak has been broken in Seattle. <laughs> I will try to, to say something about the art of fiction, which is something I am presumed to know something about and may or may not. Uh, once when I was trying to learn to write, I used to study the manuals, you know, thinking that there must be some method, some way and that it could be learned. Uh, I remember once going to a, to a lecture entitled How to Write a Short Story, Though Ignorant. <laughs> and I thought, well, here is a, a humorous man who's starting right where I am. Uh, and uh, well, I, he ought to be able to teach me something. But it was a vain hope. The, the, the ignorance in the man's title was a come on. He knew exactly how to write a short story. And he wrote them all alike. He had a bottle into which he could pour any kind of mixture. And he tested the efficacy of his method over a good many years by selling the product, the entire product of his bottling works to the Saturday Evening Post for very high prices. And for him, a story was made. It was like making a box or anything else. It wasn't born or discovered or achieved. And if it did begin as, as something discovered in life, it wasn't a story until it had been bent and whittled and, and uh, coerced and pulled to fit his pattern. Every story for him began with a carefully constructed situation with the seeds of conflict in it. Let us say two men were in conflict over a girl or a corporation or a gold mine or something. Uh, they were evenly matched, both of them relatively attractive. Uh, only the most tenuous and sometimes deceptive hints would tell you which one was the good guy and which one was the bad. You didn't know which one you wanted to win in the beginning. The first one held the advantage and then the other, the seesaw game. But a smart rider would lead you to believe that the one who was ultimately going to lose was really going to win. Uh, so that you were misled. And at a point of greatest complication... It would seem that the bad guy, who by now was distinguishable and whom you didn't like and whom you hoped, who you hoped wouldn't win, uh, was going to get her or it. And then as swiftly and economically and plausibly as possible, something was introduced or revealed that turned things entirely around. So the story hinged on this reversal. Bad guy went under, good guy came out on top. As in Cinderella and many other basic plots that could be looked up, in a book called Pulte's 36 Dramatic Situations. <laughs> By the time the denouement was reached, the reader would realize that he'd really been hoping through the last half of the story that it would turn out this way, and so it seemed inevitable. Uh, since I sought instruction from that ignorant lecturer, I've written a few dozen short stories and a dozen or more novels, and I'm by now willing to grant that his method of the plotted story, of the complication resolved or reversed, which is as old as storytelling itself and as out of fashion as Oxford bags, 
can still be effective and artful in the right hands and under the right circumstances and when informed with some passion. Conflict still is the essence of drama, no matter how we attenuate it or etherealize it or disguise it. Winning or losing, as in basketball games in Portland last night, are still endings that people care about. And last-minute winnings and endings, as a week or so ago, in the big game between Stanford and California, when Stanford scored nine points in the last 12 seconds of play, that's the best kind of all, because those reversals are not to be expected. Reversal of expectation is essentially foolproof uh, as an interest-getter, as storytelling, as TV and the movies prove every day. And even stories that seem to avoid entirely the calculated manipulation of reality that's implicit in reversals can be seen when we look at them carefully to still be reversals uh, as old sort of as, as the story of the widow of Ephesus or something. If you look at John Cheever's stories, let us say Torch Song, in which you're following a a nice girl from the Middle West who comes to New York and makes friends and makes her way and is always looking after people and sitting by bedsides. Uh, a, a really compassionate Florence Nightingale kind of type. And then you turn the last page and he shows you necrophilia. Uh, that's a kind of ugly reversal. Uh, another one of Cheever's, The Swimmer, in which a, a kind of Amiably drunken man is making his way homeward through lawn parties and cocktail parties and so on, drinking his way back to his suburban home, and arrives finally at the door, a locked door of a sold house, and you realize that this whole story is delusion and that, that he has just been making his way backward through a ruined career and a ruined life to a kind of death. Uh, that's maybe enough evidence that there are reversals. Faulkner's Rose for Emily is another reversal story with, a, with an extra kicker in it. Uh, Emily, this story takes about 20 years in the telling and it's only told after Emily has been dead and buried and her closed up house entered for the first time in 20 years. They find that the Yankee contractor she was in love with after the Civil War, a hideous kind of misalliance, uh, who had disappeared and jilted her, gone away, had not really gone away. Emily had poisoned him, and he was there in the bed. He had been in the bed there for 20 years, melted into the bed, more or less by now, and dried into it. In the pillow next door to... <laughs> you expect that of Emily, because Emily's given that kind of character. Uh, but but uh, you see also in the pillow next to this decayed and rotted and dried out corpse, uh, an indentation so that it seems to be clear that Emily not only murdered her lover but then slept with his corpse. And then you look closely and in the last line you find in that indentation in the pillow an iron gray hair which demonstrates that she not only slept with his corpse but went on sleeping with it for 20 years. Uh, and that's a fine Faulknerian gothic detail which illuminates <laughs> <coughs> illuminates a whole attitude of intransigent southern pride. <laughs> uh, 
Since I sought instruction from that, that ignorant lecturer, I, uh, well, I've sought his instruction, uh, I've changed my mind a good deal about storytelling as I learned a little more about it and tried methods that didn't for me work. I didn't grant any validity at all to his traditional formula then. I was offended that he tried to sell me that old antique worn out routine carpentry of storytelling. Though I might have granted that conflict was still the essence of drama, I disliked the contrivance that conflict seemed to imply. For in the 1920s I was a modern young man and I'd read Chekhov and Kafka and Mansfield and Joyce and Hemingway who had dispensed with formulas, plots, and had found better ways. In the postmodernist 1990s, the ways they found may look commonplace and even anachronistic, but in the 1920s, believe me, they were revelation, to me anyway. In place of winnings and losings, they all dealt in nuances and illuminations and epiphanies. Often nobody won and nobody lost. Often there was no resolution, only a gradual clarification, a revealing, sometimes sudden. Suddenly she realized, as Frank O'Connor used to say, uh, and sometimes like a slow dawn, very, very gradual, as in a lot of Chekhov stories. And sometimes, as in Kafka, stories didn't end at all, never did end, just raveled away like dreams that we lose even while we grope to, to hang on to them. Many ways. My distaste for that lecturer stemmed partly from the fact that he was commercial, and I was above that, naturally, and partly from his carpenter's rule method. But most of all, as I finally realized, because he didn't have anything but method, he wrote from an unvarying blueprint, a template that he just put on material and squished it in. He pulled these prepackaged frivolous surprises out of his sleeve or his hat to elicit a gee whiz surprise uh, response. And that's all he was doing. There was no fire in his belly. There was no passion or vision or doubt in his mind. There was no penetration or challenge in anything that he wrote. He illuminated nothing. He opened no windows. He left no worms of wonder working in his readers' heads. He had nothing to say and nothing to ask beyond the questions to which he had just pre-cooked up the answers. The writers I admired, and I still do, were not carpenters of that kind, but something more like sculptors. Their art was and is a real probing of real troubling human confusions. They spurned replicas. They despised commercialized, standardized entertainment. They were after the mystery implicit in the stone. By now, I'm prepared to guess that any method that lets a writer lay bare even a moment of that mystery is legitimate. Skill is whatever works. Different skills will work for different writers and upon different readers and upon different materials. But any skill must work toward something. 
We're not creating machines that will do nothing but run. And moreover, the eye is not a Xerox copier or even a Canon. It must add something to what it sees. The late Donald Bartholomew, for instance, whose stories always looked like fragments, and who said he was in love with fragments, probably was in love with fragments. But what he forgot to say was that to his fragments, in his best at least, he, he always managed to add something so that his best fragments are more than fragments, they're illuminations. So one page or 600 pages, a fiction is more than a well-carpentered entertainment. It's also more than the mirror in the roadway that Stendhal said it was. Because a good writer is not really a mirror. He's a lens. One mirror is like another mirror. It's a mechanical reflector. But a lens may be anything from what's in your instamatic to what makes you handle your Hasselblad with reverence. Ultimately, there's no escaping the fact that any fiction is only good, as good as the person who makes it. It sees only with the clarity that he's capable of, and it manages to perpetuate all of his astigmatisms. It should make me nervous, and it does, to talk about my own writing. When both the writing I talk about and the things I say about it may reveal my own particular astigmatisms, of which I may be totally unaware. That sounds as if I had little secrets in there that I was afraid of being found out about, that the books are always Romana Clay, or personal confessions, and that when an I character in one of my books says something, it's really me sneakily saying my own thing behind the mask. But that is most of the time nonsense and sometimes irritating nonsense. No novel, even one meant to be autobiographical, can be read in so naively literal a fashion as that. Though it's evident from my mail that people do it all the time. <laughs> Writers are far more cunning than that. They have to be. We're all practiced shapeshifters and ventriloquists. We can assume more voices and more shapes than our own. Everybody who writes fiction, I think, has to have to some degree, probably to a high degree, the quality that Keats called negative capability, the capacity to inhabit other skins than our own. I suppose the quality that, that Shakespeare had above any writer who ever lived. He could speak with utter persuasiveness out of the mouth of Hotspur or Shylock or Iago or Hamlet or Juliet or any of a number of many characters. Faulkner, too, I think, had it more than, than almost any American writer I can think of. You could no more reconstruct the life of, of William Faulkner from his stories than you can re reconstruct Shakespeare's life from his plays. And on the other hand, some writers... A lot of writers, really, but, but three, I think, of particularly. Catherine Ann Porter, Hemingway, and the first Thomas Wolfe. Uh, <laughs> either had that capacity <clears throat> very little or used it very little. Those, those uh, writers 
The fictions of those writers are haunted by recurring characters who look like clones of their authors. The differences between those so-called objective and subjective approaches are obvious but not really critical. Some writers want to expose themselves, some want to disguise themselves, some want to eliminate themselves, efface themselves. And some who appear to expose themselves may be exposing something that you can't quite trust, distorting themselves for reasons of their own. There's more than one way to impose order upon your personal chaos. But since good writers write what is important to them, they're bound to be somewhere in that writing, either as participants or observers or ombudsmen and judges. You don't see many autobiographies of fiction writers. Unlike soldiers and statesmen, they don't come to an age when they say, now I must go back and set it all down for posterity. Uh, the reason may be that fiction writers have been writing their autobiographies piecemeal, overtly or covertly, and they go on doing it every day. Somebody said to me once, I envy you, how nice it must be to be able to write your life instead of having to live it. Uh, he had it a little wrong. <laughs> it, it isn't uh, a substitution, it's a, it's a succession when it happens. You have to live it first, and then you might write it. But once you have written it, or parts of it, even when you have disguised it somewhat, you may find that you've used up all your autobiographical principle. There's no bank account left when you come to write your own life. If there's a sense in which every piece of fiction is autobiographical, it's probably just as true that every autobiography is to some extent a fiction. A couple of years ago, I had the disturbing experience of, of writing a short autobiography for a reference book. And I noticed three things while I was sweating that out one summer. One was the difficulty of getting my precious life into 10,000 words, which I should have known in the beginning. The second was that I constantly had the feeling that I'd written all this before. And the third was that on every page I had to restrain myself to keep from fixing it. Making it come out right. I went around myself like a mother around a Victorian maiden of 15 on her way to her first formal ball, you know, tucking and making, making myself uh, look proper. And that wasn't the object of autobiography, as I kept reminding myself. I was running a sack race, sort of leg bound by facts. Whereas when I had rendered some of that same experience as fiction earlier, I could be as cavalier with it as I wanted, because if it didn't work out in life the way I wanted it to, I could make it work out in a fiction, make it more consistent with itself. And I don't know uh, yet which of those two methods is the better way to get at the truth. Um, Sometimes it becomes a game, as in Philip Roth, for instance. You may know a book of Phil Roth's called The Facts, which is not the facts at all. Uh, 
The book purports to give the true dope on the life of Philip Roth, the author, as distinguished from the life of his creation, with which it might have been confused, his creation being his stooge Zuckerman. But in the facts, Zuckerman, a fiction, enters unbidden, well, not quite unbidden, really, he's asked in, uh, and then from the sidelines makes Bronx cheers and snorts and ironic comments, <laughs> while his author tries to disguise, to, to fool people into thinking that they are now getting the true dope. The Facts is as surely a novel posing as an autobiography, as, as Zuckerman Unbound is an autobiography posing as a novel. In The Education of Henry Adams, Adams remarks that chaos is the law of nature, order is the dream of man. Both fiction and autobiography attempt to impose order on the only life the writer really knows, his own. Once at a literary meeting, I heard someone ask John Cheever why he wrote, and he replied without hesitation to try to make sense of my life. That's the best answer I can conceive of, really. The life we all live is amateurish and accidental. It begins, more often than not, by accident, and proceeds by trial and error toward very dubious ends. That's the law of nature. But the dream of man won't let us accept what nature hands us, really. We have to tinker with it the way I was tinkering with my own autobiography trying to give it a purpose, a direction, a meaning, or if we have a particularly despairing frame of mind, to give it the direction of no direction and no meaning. We can't let it alone in any case. The unexamined life, as the wise Greek said, is not worth living. We have to examine it, if only to persuade ourselves that we matter and are in control or at least know what's being done to us. And autobiography and fiction are merely variant means to the same end. Neither one should be wrapped up in any straitjacket of method. The method becomes paramount only when it becomes an end in itself, when you begin to, to deal in the techniques of fiction and forget that fiction has to be about something. If you're just making prepackaged answers and evading the real questions or just overturning existing formulas in a kind of rebellious methodology, I think you're not getting at the guts of it. The guts of it, of any significant fiction or autobiography, is an anguished question. The true art of fiction, in which I include autobiography, involves putting that question within a plausible context of order. When we invent fictional characters, as when we invent gods, we more often than not invent them in our own image. We create the unknown, in any case, out of the materials of the known and observed. The worlds that novelists create, and the best ones do create worlds, even those worlds which are made up of backward or forward time or, or outer space uh, are made out of the details of the real world. You, you write a novel about Mars and you're going to have an awful lot of Earth in it. Uh, 
try to invent a new color. You know. Invention and method here fuse, it seems to me. The writer may play games of distortion, double exposure, deliberately blurred focus, all kinds of tricks. He may focus upon himself focusing, as John Barth and others have, have done in, in making fiction out of the act of making fiction. Stories called In the Fun House, which you may know. Ingenious as that often is, it gets a little Alexandrian for my taste. I do believe the real world exists and that literature is the imitation of life. And I like to keep my categories separate and recognizable. Sleight of hand, at least by my taste, is not enough. And distortion can be a method with real dangers in it. Thus, an admirable artist, Flannery O'Connor, said that she dealt in the grotesque because when speaking to the hard of hearing, one had to shout. Uh, that remark rather offends me as a reader because, in the first place, I, I don't like to think I'm hard of hearing. And anyway, with the truly deaf, shouting doesn't help. It, it only... <laughs> confuses and annoys. I like Flannery O'Connor's stories much better than I liked her justification of them, because her justification of them seems to me doctrinaire. She wrote better than, than she justified. Having no such spiritual certainties as she had, I have to make do with spiritual uncertainties. And having besides, I guess, a, a temperamental aversion to distortion. I have had to try to clarify my life, the life I know, in the only way I know. My life challenged me to make sense of it, and I made fictions. Like, I am half Norwegian and half Indian. But I wanted the fictions to be recognizable and true to the ordinary perception, not necessarily to the deaf. And I thought I could best achieve that with a method that was direct and undistorted. We will return for the rest of the event with Wallace Stegner in a moment. But first, I wanted to tell you about our upcoming literary arts series. This year's six-part series includes conversations and lectures with the leading fiction and nonfiction writers of our time, including Pulitzer Prize-winning novelists Louise Erdrich and Richard Powers, Man Booker Award-winning author Bernardine Evaristo, National Book Award winner Charles Yu, and New York Times bestselling authors Lauren Groff and Daniel James Brown. A series subscription includes three books and digital access to all six events. Visit lectures.org to find out more and to purchase in-person or online passes. And now, more from Wallace Stegner. Ansel Adams, the late great photographer, trying to explain what his photographs were about, borrowed a word from his idol Stieglitz, the word equivalent. The photographic image was an equivalent of the feeling the photographer had when he made the image, a form of transferable currency, what could be passed on to the viewer. I will accept that notion for fiction, too. And like Adams and Edward Weston and Imogen Cunningham and all the rest of that 
F-64 group in San Francisco, I would try and have tried to avoid those double exposures and imitations of painting, the tricky lighting and the artful compositions, and rely so far as I am able to, as they did, on found objects, natural lighting, and the clear statement of the lens. Literature is a function of temperament. And thank God there are many temperaments and therefore many kinds of literature. I can speak only for my own. And after considerable acquaintance, I have (coughs) come to the conclusion that my temperament is quiet, recessive, skeptical, and watchful. I don't like big, noisy scenes in fiction or in life. I avoid riots and mass meetings. It would embarrass me to chase fire engines. I have a hard enough time making sense of what my life hands me without going out hunting more exciting events. I remember 30 years or so ago in London, I got into a discussion with Martha Gellhorn, whom some of you may remember as Hemingway's third wife, a journalist, a good one, actually. She told me with admirable frankness that though I wrote like a bird, I didn't write about anything that interested her. She had just returned from reporting events in the Sinai Desert and the Gulf of Aqaba. She thought I ought to go down there or someplace like that, someplace where things were happening. (laughs) So that I could apply my talents to, to things worthy of them. And I offended her, I guess, I'm afraid, by saying I thought that would be a kind of slumming. Uh, Not for her, since she was a journalist, and that was her business, to report the events of the world. But for me, I didn't think then and I don't think now that going out and committing experience in order to be able to write about it is the best way to make sense of any life. (laughs) Unless I was irresistibly drawn to the Arab-Israeli conflict, unless I had some personal stake in it, uh, unless I had some hope of bringing it to an end, some kind of involvement, I thought that I ought, out of sheer sympathy, to leave that desert to those whose commitments were so serious that they shed their blood for it. As with excitement and violence, world events So with self-conscious innovation, the attempt to be new. Robert Frost used to go around saying there are no new ways to be new. He was quite right. (laughs) Uh, The the observable fact about so-called experimental writing is that so often it turns out to be belated imitation of James Joyce. (laughs) A hundred years late. Another is that, like biological mutations, experimental forms and manners so seldom survive. So long as I'm saying what doesn't interest me, I might as well fill out the list, I guess. Uh, As I wouldn't be tempted to, to exploit the battles or troubles of strangers for my own purposes, or play innovator for the sake of being in on the latest fad. So I haven't ever been driven to thump what Mencken called the bourgeoisie, 
or foam in rage at the middle brows, or speak in thunder on this morning's headlines. Not in fiction. Fiction is too important to be abused that way. In fiction, I think we should have no agenda except to try to be truthful. The shouters in thunder roar from their podiums and pulpits. I squeak from my corner. They speak to the deaf, maybe, but it takes good ears to hear me. For I want to be part of the common sound, a not-too-dominating element of the ambient noise. I'm old enough to have watched a lot of bright innovations and passionate causes fade out as ex-fads. Just as in my childhood I watched a lot of hopeful short-grass homesteaders fade out and disappear before the drought and hot winds. My family was among them. We we turned tail and disappeared. And I never quite got over the faint residual shame of quitting. It would have been a disaster to stay. I would never have liked it if we had. But I I still was was kind of ashamed to be quitting. I admired the stickers, and I guess I still do. Perhaps that's why if I had the wish and the capacity and the fairy godmother who could make me any writer I wanted to be, I would rather be a writer like the Fielding who wrote Tom Jones than than like the Stern who wrote Tristram Shandy. Though I like both, both books, I would rather write one kind than the other. Certainly I would rather be either of those than, than the Lily who wrote Euphues, which was a great innovation in its time and took London by storm. Those attitudes I've grown into slowly. I started, as I just said, with the revolutionary and iconoclastic attitudes of the 20s, the time when I was in college. I voted with the vortices and I imaged with the images. If I'd been able to get to Paris, I would have babbled with the Dadaists, you know, in a <laughs> direction of total intellectual and artistic and emotional disaffiliation. But there was one trouble. I'd grown up a migrant without history, tradition, extended family, any of that, in remote backwaters of the West. I never saw a water closet or a lawn till I was 11 years old. Uh, I never met a person with my surname, apart from my parents and brother, until I was past 30. I never knew and don't know now the names of three of my grandparents, the front names of three of my grandparents. My family could have told me a little, but they never did. And there was a lot that they couldn't tell me because neither of them had ever finished grade school. And their uprooting was the cause of mine. My mother was sympathetic and supportive and a saint, but she didn't really have the tools to help me in the places, in some of the places where I most needed help. And so, though I was susceptible to the dialectic of those who declared their independence of custom, tradition, and the dead hand of the past. I had no tradition to declare myself independent of, and I had never felt the dead hand of the past in my life. If the truth were told, I suppose it now is, I was always hungry to feel that hand on my head, to belong to some socially or intellectually or historically or literarily coherent 
cohesive group, some tribe, some culture, some recognizable and persistent offshoot of Western civilization. If I revolted, and I had all the appropriate temptations, I had to revolt away from what I was, and that meant revolting toward something, toward the tradition, the cultural memory, the shared experience, the order that in my own life had been lacking. Even my prose, I suppose, felt the pull of orthodox grammar and syntax. I never could write in <laughs> incomplete sentences. Uh, and eventually, inevitably, I was drawn to what I obviously most needed. I've been trying to make natural chaos into human order, or personal order at least, trying to make some sense of an ordinary American life for a long time now, more than a half century. The West in which I've spent most of my life is not simply a retarded culture, though for a while it was. It's also a different culture from other parts of America. certainly a very different culture from the literary capitals of America. A different culture with different drives and assumptions and prides and avenues of opportunity. All of that. School and college do sandpaper a person down into something like the norm, take some of the roughness of the frontier off. But the frontier leaves its tracks just the same. My first 15 years were migrant and deprived. My next 15 were academic and literary and aspiring and deprived. <laughs> and my last 50-odd are academic and literary and not quite so deprived. That's progress, I suppose, of a kind. But I'm still the person that my first 15 years made me. Without consciously intending to, I have written my life as fictions. The Big Rock Candy Mountain and Wolf Willow cover those years of frontier transients in the Dakotas, Washington, Saskatchewan, Montana, Utah, Nevada, wherever. The Preacher and the Slave about the IWW, Martyr Joe Hill, and Recapitulation, a growing up in the 20s novel, utilized the milieu of Salt Lake City where I went to high school and college and taught for a while. About that place, I've also written some histories, biographies, essays, short stories. My 45 years in California are reflected in a shooting star, a spectator bird, all the little live things, some stories, an angle of repose. All of them inevitably revealing fragments of myself, some of them repeating episodes that I actually lived. Angle of Repose does escape the personal because I went out and borrowed a whole set of ancestors entire. But because I chose to tell that story in the first person singular, a lot of people have mistakenly recognized me in Lyman Ward's wheelchair. But I'm not quite yet. Of all the books I ever wrote, the latest, Crossing to Safety, is in many ways the most personal. It is, in fact, deliberately close to my own experience, opinions, and feelings, which are refracted through a narrator not too different from myself. 
If the Big Rock Candy Mountain was an exorcism, and it was, crossing to safety is an attempt to understand and make sense of a most important relationship of the, in the lives of my wife and myself, a friendship that was rich and rewarding, but that left us fumbling for meanings and unsure of our own emotional ground. I could also say, though I wouldn't push this, that it's an attempt to make the commonplace memorable, to communicate through the story of essentially uninflected lives, all the pain, anguish, confusion, affections, sacrifices, the spontaneous pleasures, and the unanticipated catastrophes of the kind of living that most Americans live. Most of us don't, well, I won't go into that. <laughs> It was a risky book, actually, to set before a reading public accustomed to spicier fare. There isn't a murder, a divorce, an illicit weekend, a gun, a liaison, a drug dream, a hot sex scene, even a wild party in it. It deals with academics who, by definition, are tepid and undramatic. Two young couples meet during the Depression in Madison, Wisconsin. One pair is rich, well-endowed, well-connected, and ambitious. The other is poor, orphaned, unconnected, and ambitious. The two men face similar problems, similar crises of promotion and tenure during the Depression. The wives are both pregnant. Nothing there to strain the acting powers of Clint Eastwood or Sher. <laughs> Over the course of 30 years, these couples have children, suffer disappointment and illness, make do, put one foot after the other, survive, and are bent but not broken by their experience. Very different in their personalities, they remain close friends, as some people do. They don't always approve of one another. In fact, all three of the others have some difficulty accepting the dominating personality of Charity Lang. But friendship outlasts disapproval, irritation, and matriarchal rigor. At the end of the book, and for that matter at the beginning since the front stage action takes only one day, Charity is on her way out of the lives she loved and supported and dominated. And the others are left to survive, each according to individual nature and condition, or willfulness, polio, cancer, blind chance. The tensions are the tensions between and among people who love each other at least as much as they resist each other. It's all very quiet. I intended it to be true. I wrote my guts out trying to try to make it as moving on the page as it was to me while I was living and reliving it. My reason for writing that book were not literary. Reasons were not literary in the usual sense at all. We had such friends as Sid and Charity Lang, and I tried to put them on the page with as little distortion or exaggeration or heightening as I could manage, because I kept trying, even after they were both dead, to understand them. 
I wanted to work out iconically the deepest and most troubling relationship of our lives and the most rewarding. I wanted to comprehend how a woman as charming as Charity Lang, a woman with every grace and every opportunity, affectionate, generous, thoughtful, intending only good, could at the same time be a domineering matriarch, a willful putter-downer of her husband, a tyrant sometimes to the children, whose every first word and first tooth and so on she lovingly entered into the family documents, a woman who could say in anguish at the end, my God, I have done so much harm, when all she had intended was affection and help. I wanted to understand how it might have been to be Charity's husband, by what combination of love, forgiveness, weakness, self-deception, Sid Lang could have submitted to a lifetime of humiliating henpecking. I knew how it was to be Charity's friend, alternately baffled, angry, and disarmed. Only by writing her as straight as I knew how could I get a clue to how it felt to be a member of the family which we almost were members of. I suppose I wanted to justify their lives, to bring them together at the end, to lay their ghosts. In that effort, I wrote very, very close to the facts. I resisted whenever I felt myself wanting to adjust or improve. It was almost as if I were writing biography or history. I adopted a narrator who, though not myself, was somebody not too unlike me, a Western orphan, upward mobile, making his way. I used episodes from our actual experience because better than any invented episodes, they evoked the quality of our relationship. I reported the scene of charities going off to the hospital to die, exactly as my wife, who was present, reported it to me. I relied on memory for many scenes, the birth of Sally Morgan's child, the sailing mishap on Lake Mendota in Madison, the walking trip in the Green Mountains, the dinner party at which the four first became friends. Nevertheless, I was not running a sack race. I wasn't as tightly bound as I somehow had intended to be, as I would have been in a history or a biography or autobiography. I could expand and contract, omit and amplify, according to some inner stabilizer that told me what was right here, now, on this page, for this story, for this novel. What I wrote was a labor of love and bafflement, as close to the, so close to the facts that at first I thought I shouldn't publish it. But I had made more unconscious changes than I knew, and, and eventually members of the family persuaded me that there was nothing libelous or wrong about it. Uh, that what I had written was a novel and not a case history or a memoir. And I didn't emerge with answers or judgments, prefabricated or earned. I emerged with as many questions that I had gone in with. I still don't understand Charity Lang or Sid Lang, who loved and endured her. But maybe something has changed by the act of writing. Once I wrote them, those people achieved a sort of inevitability. They had at least a shape that was now more rigid than it had been. There they were in a book, characters made permanent. 
irrevocably what they were. And even I, who had put them in that book, feel them somehow more substantial and less troubling than when they existed only in my memory or my life. So we are back more or less where we began, how to write a short story or a story of any kind, though ignorant or baffled. (laughs) You take something that is important to you, something you have brooded about. You don't give it a prefabricated shape. You simply try to see it as clearly as you can and to fix it in some transferable equivalent. All you want, the absolute end of what you want in the finished print is the clean statement of the lens, which is yourself on the subject which has been absorbing your attention. Sure, it's autobiography. Sure, it's fiction. Either way, if you've done it right, it ought to be true, and that's what it's all about. Thank you very much. It was an honor to host Wallace Stegner in 1990. His wisdom, insight, and humor remain with us today. Thank you to the Seattle Arts and Lectures staff, board, and community. And thanks to all of you for listening. This show would not be possible without you. Our show is produced by Jack Straw Cultural Center with theme music by Daniel Spills. To hear more, subscribe from wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, rate and review us so that more people can enjoy Sal On Air.